Good morning, you all. It is good to be back. It's good to be back in a city I love. Uh, I spent part of my childhood in Berkeley, and I would wander Telegraph and Shattuck like the street urchin, and I would while away hours in the stacks of the used bookstores. And they might smell musty and dusty to some of you, but they smelled like um, possibility and refuge to me. It is good to be back in the sanctuary, too. Uh, during college, if my family spent Christmas in the Bay Area, we'd often worship here. And a dear college friend of mine, Jessica Robertson Wright, uh, she was on staff here for a time and was married here as well. So this city and this place and this space, uh, they hold cherished memories. It's good to be back, but it's also strange for me to reflect on being back especially when I consider who I was then versus who I am now. As a youngster, I was by all external appearances a good Chinese church kid, faithfully trotting after my grandma as she handed out tracts while shopping in San Francisco Chinatown. She would ambush these other unsuspecting old ladies as they were picking their oranges or their bok choy so innocently maybe a plump piece of ginger. Do you believe in Jesus? She would ask them in Cantonese. And I would stand nearby, just withering inside, <laughs> wishing that Jesus would return right then and there. <laughs> have you been to church lately? Do you have a Bible? My grandma would go on and on and on because we were Baptists. And I came to believe in miracles. I came to believe in miracles because why didn't these women walk away? <laughs> I couldn't understand why they still wanted any vegetables. But on the outside, I was the obedient grandson. I would clutch the green tote bag that held her Bible and about 10,000 extra tracts just in case. And then in my other hand, we had all the plastic bags of the things that we had been buying. In the context of today's scripture reading, I knew what I was supposed to be. I wanted to be the good soil. So let me read that story for you now. It appears in three of the Gospels. I'm going to read Luke's version. Listen for what God might have to say to God's people today through the reading of these ancient words. When a large crowd was gathering as people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell on a path and was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock, and as it grew up, it withered for lack of moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew with it and choked it. Some fell into good soil, and when it grew, it produced a hundredfold. As Jesus said this, he called out, if you have ears to hear, then hear. Then his disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to others I speak in parables, so that looking they may not perceive and hearing they may not understand. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones on the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. 
They believe only for a while and in a time of testing fall away. As for what fell among the thorns, these are the ones who hear. But as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. But as for that in the good soil, these are the ones who, when they hear the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with endurance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So how does it feel to you when you think back to past versions of yourself? What stirs in you when you revisit who you once were or what you used to believe? What have you gained and what have you lost? We are all works in spiritual progress, of course. The elements of our rich and complicated stories, layered higgledy-piggledy, We've been bolstered by hope and we've been battered by hurt. Most of us bearing some nicks and some scars. Some of us maybe even bleeding from some too fresh wounds. I guess that most of us try not to let others see those nicks, those scars, and especially those wounds. Particularly in places like church, it feels risky. What if others knew? What if others could hear the doubts that dog us at night or the questions that creep in when our spirits feel frayed? What if others suspected we didn't have it all put together just so? What if others could see that beneath your pristine Sunday best, you're actually feeling your messy, spiritually empty worst? What if others could perceive how close you might be to falling apart? What if others had an inkling that your faith might be less solid than you wish it to appear? Or even that you might be losing that faith? No, I think most of us know the right things to do or not do and say or not say. After all, here we are in Berkeley, not exactly the most religious corner of this state or this country or this planet, and you are here in church on a Sunday morning. Most of you know. You know how to prop up that faithful facade. You know how to burnish that fine image. You know how to play the church game. You know you want to be the good soil. What church good goer would read today's passage and not want that, right? I cringe a little when I think back to 20-something Jeff, who was last in this space, and when I reflect on how he understood this scripture. Because if you had asked that Jeff to exegete this text, he would have done so with much certainty and very little humility, because he knew, he was sure, what this meant. He knew, he was sure, that Jesus was discussing exactly what kind of soil you had to be what kind of person you had to be to find yourself in God's good graces. Never considering for a second that God's good graces are actually marked by a whole lot more grace than we sometimes suggest. 20-something Jeff was sure that this parable was laden with warning and laced with threat. You didn't want to be a dusty path or rocky soil 
or a thorn-choked field. The only viable option, the only faithful poss possibility was to be the good soil or else. It all seems so simple, right? Except to anyone who has wrestled with the reality of being human. It all seems so simple except to anyone who knows about the life, the rich and the vibrant and the complex life of soil. Some years ago, I was a farmhand at the Farminary, which is a 21-acre farm owned and operated by Princeton Seminary. And one day, the Farminary director, Nate Stuckey, who is this lovely Mennonite, he was one of my professors, he took us to a part of the farm that decades ago had been turned into a temporary road. Gravel had been trucked in to pave a way for workers to access utility equipment that was tucked back in the land. And you wouldn't know it now because the area looks like uh, grassland. It's got ankle-high weeds and some small wildflowers. And Nate had a shovel, which he handed to a volunteer to start digging. And within a couple inches of the surface, the shovel went thunk. Because what looked like a fertile field was really rocky ground. And then as we stood there, Nate read the passage we heard a few minutes ago, the parable of the sower. And he urged us to observe our environs, the nearby garden's rich soil, where our vegetables were growing, the edges we had left to grow unhindered, where there was goldenrod and Virginia creeper flourishing, the places we've paved over to make way for a parking lot, the spaces nature was relentlessly reclaiming, where sweet gum and red maple were growing. Everything is connected, Nate told us. It's all constantly changing, too, because God's creation is not a fixed final product, but visible poetry in perpetual motion, often for better and for worse, bearing human fingerprints. And if that's true, if this world really does shout of God's goodness, it also whispers a more complicated story of human presence. And if all that's true, how does that shape our reading of this parable? I wonder. I wonder whether Jesus is not actually telling us what we have to be. I wonder if Jesus isn't telling us who we have to be and whether this parable isn't so much prescriptive as it is descriptive. What if Jesus is discussing soil life? What if Jesus is narrating an ecosystem? What if Jesus is not threatening or warning? What if this is an act of accompaniment and a gesture of grace? What if Jesus is saying, I see you, human? What if he gets how hard the journey of faith can be at times, as if you're trying to navigate thorns and thistles, and there might be seasons when your soul feels fertile, sure, ready to soak up the sunshine and drink in the rain, and thank God for those. But also, there are those other times. What if this parable is less a teachable moment than an expression of sacred solidarity from the one who embodied love? We sometimes do ourselves a disservice by pulling these texts out of their original contexts. And I don't mean just the cultural context. In Luke's gospel, right before this parable, Jesus heals an unnamed sinful woman who is scorned by the Pharisees. 
Luke tells us, too, that among the band of believers who travel with Jesus are the 12 disciples, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Then shortly after this parable, Jesus meets his disciples in the midst of a storm that terrifies them. He heals a demon-possessed Gentile. He cures a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, and he raises a girl from the dead. Do you imagine all these people to be pillars of unshakable faith and stalwart figures in their spiritual communities who earned their healing? I don't think so. They were outcasts and survivors, well acquainted with sorrow and intimately familiar with suffering. You might even think of them as losers. Jesus calls them his friends. Some of you might push back and say, but Jeff, we're talking today about losing faith and all these people showed that they had faith, except that they didn't. The demoniac never asks for liberation. Jesus just brings it. The dead girl demonstrates no personal faith at all. Her dad does, but the girl, she's dead. You take all of this together and you begin to glimpse this Jesus who honors life's complexity, the enormity of human emotion, the beauty of relationship, the gorgeous messiness of the social fabric, and long before he is himself resurrected, Jesus orchestrates resurrection in other people's lives, creating connection, bringing out belonging, forging wholeness, restoring faith. That is the textual context for this parable. Consider also the agrarian setting in which this story was first told. The original hearers were tenant farmers, aging goat herders, young women who tended sheep, older ones who gathered grapes. They bore witness season after season, year after year, to the life of the land. They knew the land. To listen with their ears is to understand that the sower, some translations say farmer, was first of all terrible at his job. I think maybe we underestimate Jesus as a comedian because Jesus was funny. And his audience would have laughed at this tale. Its protagonist scatters seed haphazardly, even wastefully everywhere, like no responsible farmer would ever do. And I can imagine some thrifty old farmer with decades of harvest under his belt, dirt under his fingernails, harumphing in ridicule at this story about some dude who just throws seed around as if it costs nothing. To listen with these folks' ears is to excavate layers of meaning buried within these passages because these people's ancestral wisdom taught them that fields don't just stay the same. Fertility must be nurtured. Pastures need rest. Soil requires recovery time. Change is the only constant. Birdsong would help them mark time. So the seed that falls on that path, not wasted, not exactly, except if you believe that it's only your belly and your field that matter because those birds will eat the seed up, fatten themselves, and poop out the seeds elsewhere. The seeds that grow but then wither on the rocky parts, not wasted, not exactly, except if you're only fixated on that one season. Because what manages to sprout will wither and die, yes, but it also leaves organic material. And year after year, it gradually builds up the soil atop the rock. And the seeds that spring up among the thorns, not wasted, not at all. 
Uh, the biologist and theologian George Fisher, who taught at Johns Hopkins, he observes that over time, thorny shrubs and thistly plants, they boost soil health until one day an opportunistic farmer arrives, uproots the thorns and thistles, and makes a field. The shrubs litter, the nutrients their roots gather, the water stored in the porosity they generate, Fisher writes. They create patches of good soil and otherwise barren ground, islands of fertility that are an initial step toward restoring the land. The one note of warning actually comes not in the part of the, about the path, not in the bit about the rocky soil, not in the mention of the thorns and thistles, the one warning is in the section about the good soil. Because good soil doesn't just happen. It must be cultivated and maintained and amended with compost and allowed to rest. Never immune to the conditions of its context, good soil too is subject to change. As every decent financial advisor or legally bound one will tell you, past performance is no guarantee of future results. If farmed too intensively, the soil's organic matter is depleted, George Fisher writes. When fallowed too long, the soil becomes overgrown with thorns. When subjected to prolonged drought, even the thorns die and erosion leaves the land bare. So what Jesus describes is not static but dynamic, not a fixed set of circumstances, but the ever-shifting movement of life and death, relationship and resurrection. This is a picture of the story of the life of the land, and this is a picture of the story of the life of our faith. This is a picture of the story of a God who is so lavish in divine love that the good news gets scattered everywhere. I've had seasons in my life, much like I would guess seasons in yours, when the soil of my personal soul has been near absent and hard as a path, when the soil of my own soil has been rocky, when the soil of my own soul has been choked with thorns, when the soil of my tender soul has been fertile ground. And all along, I believe God's good news has been present flung about like the seed of this sower, spread with uncommon grace, ready to nourish, eager to take root, waiting for me to notice. All along, God's good news has been present, often among others whose soils are in a different state. All along, God's good news has been present, ready for me and for you to do the faithful work of tending, ready for me and for you to join hands in cultivation, ready for me and for you to see our interdependence, ready for me and for you to participate in the processes of God's good creation. Perhaps, perhaps we do need to lose our faith. Perhaps we need to lose our juvenile faith, our immature faith, our solitary faith, our faith that's based on certainty and unquestioning. Perhaps we need to lose our faith to gain the faith to which God calls us. Open-hearted faith, courageous faith, communal faith, a faith that adapts and evolves. Perhaps we have to grieve the things to which we once held so tightly, things that don't serve us or our neighbor well, things that we so jealously claim as mine, even as we refuse to recognize what is ours. Perhaps we ought to send these things to the spiritual compost pile, 
submitting them to the worms and to the microbes to be transformed into something more beautiful and more life-giving and more freeing. Perhaps we must release the need to be right, the need to be certain, the need to be seen as holy, the need to have it all figured out. Perhaps we have to embrace the connectedness of all things, the miracle of the birds and the thorns, the rain that wears away the rock over the generations, and the sun that nourishes it all. Perhaps this picture of the Christian life is a thousand little deaths and a thousand resurrections, a thousand moments in which we have to release what we once held dear and accept a thousand invitations to feel the good news of God's embrace one more time. For those who want to save their life will lose it, Jesus said. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. I want you to listen to the story one more time. I believe in reading scripture together. When a large crowd was gathering as people were coming to him from time, town after town, Jesus said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell on a path and was trampled on. And the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock, and as it grew up, it withered for lack of moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew with it and choked it. Some fell into good soil, and when it grew, it produced a hundredfold. As he said this, he called out, If you have ears to hear, then hear. Then his disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said to you, It has been given been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But to others I speak in parables so that looking they may not perceive and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones on the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe only for a while, and in a time of testing, they fall away. As for what fell among the thorns, these are the ones who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. Their fruit does not mature. But as for that in the good soil, these are the ones who, when they hear the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with endurance. I'm going to summon my Baptist roots briefly, so that's not totally Baptist, right? Because it's brief. <laughs> and testify. I want to testify that the person you st see standing here is no saint. I have strayed far from God's best. By God's grace, I have survived. Years went by when my butt barely touched a pew. I have sought salvation in places that could never offer it. I've tried to find comfort in spaces not fit for discussion in a sacred sanctuary like this one. This body, this body has been used and abused. And in the painful wake of that, I have used and abused my body in unspeakable ways. And by God's grace, I'm still here. My life has been hard path and rocky soil. Thistle choked earth, and at a few moments, maybe some good soil too. I have felt barren and broken up, overgrown with thorns, and once in a while, maybe a little ready to grow. I have been all of these things, and I suspect I will be again. 
I know my life will be hard path and rocky soil, thistle choked earth and God willing good soil too. I will again feel barren and broken up, overgrown with the thorns of human existence and maybe once in a while ready to grow. That's just life, this side of heaven. But this much I believe to be true too. That profligate sower will keep doing his thing. And on my better days, or to be more honest, in my better moments, I will remember, thanks to friends and family, thanks to dear people like Charlene, who read my eulogy earlier, and um, <laughs> beloveds like my husband Tristan, and you all who have so graciously welcomed me into your family of faith, on my better days and in my better moments, I remember that lavish love, the love that made us, the love that comes to us in the person of God with us, the love that promises never to forsake us. Perhaps the parable depicts not who we must be once and for all, but who we have been and who we will be. This life and this world are a hard path and rocky soil, thistle-choked earth and good soil, constantly changing, ever morphing. Jesus knew. Jesus knew that life couldn't and wouldn't be easy, not this side of kingdom come. Jesus knew you would have questions and doubts, that your own certainty could not be your forever home, that trying to follow him would mean grappling with what society teaches as well as what you believe. Jesus knew what it meant to be human. Jesus knew. And through stories like these, Jesus tells us he knows. By naming these truths, he models compassion for us, gentle compassion for ourselves and tender compassion for others. By naming these truths, he summons us to a posture toward this aching world that welcomes questions and shows hospitality to doubt, sits in solidarity with the suffering and lends a shoulder to those who mourn. By naming these truths, Jesus insists that he is with us, and he urges us to be with one another, bearing witness. The last word in today's passage is endurance. Thank you for enduring the sermon. <laughs> the Greek word hupomone can be translated uh, endurance or steadfast, uh, steadfastness or perseverance. What endures? What stays steadfast? What perseveres? Is this core truth? This is our undying hope and this is our good news. Jesus is that ridiculous farmer, scattering the seed of his love with grace and abandon. But there's more. Don't you think that farmer also tends to the soil, caring for it, cultivating it, finding a way to turn it to good? Isn't there a promise here too? Jesus' kingdom will come. Jesus' reign will prevail. And until that day, his hands remain open, his arms outstretched, always ready to enfold you in his incomparable embrace, always ready to remind you that you are so loved as you have been, as you are, and as you are becoming. You might lose your faith. You might but you will never, ever lose God's love. 
And in that everlasting love, you will be found. Amen.